Welcome back to Aliyah Yomi. Today we're going to be learning Bechukosai Sheni, the second Aliyah in Pashas Bechukosai. Again, this is a short Aliyah running from Perek Chavov Vov to Perek Chavov Tes, a sum total of four Sukkim. Um, our Aliyah is on the topic of peace in this world. We're told that if we continue to follow in the, the, the ways of Hashem, Hashem will place peace in the land of Israel and we will be able to sleep at night without being concerned, without being at fear. The wild animals will be removed from the land and not even the sword will not pass through your land. Um, you were told that you were going to race after, chase after your enemies and they're going to, 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 to fall before you um, to, to the sword. In fact, um, five of you will chase 100 of, of the, your enemies and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 of your enemies and they will fall in front of you to the sword. As Hashem says, I'll give my attention to you, I'll increase you. And I'll establish my covenant with you. Very beautiful terminology, which is described if we're following in the ways of Hashem. Let's try to appreciate some basic points to ponder. Um, number one is, what does it mean that the sword will not pass through your land? Does that mean that war won't be coming through your land? But that's already said. We're told that there's going to be peace and you're going to be able to sleep at night PM in, in a state of security. Rashi explains that it's not referring to a war. It's referring to not even that it's not going to even be the case that your enemies or even your allies need to use your land to pass through to fight their enemies. You're going to in such a state of peace. That's what it'll be. You're not going to be involved in any other tangential fights as well. In fact, this was the mistake that Yoshia HaMelech made. We know that at the times of Yoshia HaMelech, he did an incredible spiritual reform, changed the landscape of the spiritual yearnings of his society. And then when the king of Egypt, Pharaoh wanted to go through his land to fight in the north, to fight against the Assyrians, he felt that, that based on this pro, pro, uh, prophecy, that he was at a spiritual state where they did not even, were not even going to have a sword of the Egyptians going through the land to fight the Assyrians. And he declined this and ultimately was killed because the state people were not at the state and the status of his, uh, um, his imagination of what they, he thought they were at, unfortunately, as well. Now, if you do a quick, uh, quick uh, numbers game, you'll see the numbers don't actually work out. So let's let's do a quick, uh, quick equivalency over here. It says that five of you will chase a hundred, and ten of you, well, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. So that that it's actually, um, if you wanted to do the math, so the five to a hundred is a one to twenty ratio. So a one to twenty ratio for a hundred would mean two thousand. So a hundred of you will chase two thousand. But instead, a hundred of you are chasing ten thousand. How does that work exactly? Well, how does the math work? So the first approach is the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn, there's, there's three different ways of looking at this. Ibn Ezra says, he, he says that, you know, sometimes when the Torah is using large numbers, it, it'll round up. So it's true, the proportions of the second Dohav don't correspond, but it, 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 it's not meant to be a math game over here. It's the Torah is just saying big numbers, small numbers will chase big numbers. That's how powerful you'll be. Don't get into all the nitty gritty de, de proportions over here. It's easier to say Revavav, which is 10,000. So Ibn Ezra is essentially saying love Davka. This is not meant to be to, 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 to be analyzed on it on a uh, spreadsheet. The second approach is Rabbi Bachai, and he says that it was talking about that, that he adds in one word, which refers to that the Torah is about 500, not 100 chasing, and therefore actually it works out. So it's referring to 100 um, um, of your uh, of fives, which refers to um, 500 of you, which does chase 10,000, which do, therefore the math does add up. So he's, therefore um, the, the, the ratios are good. However, the third approach is Rashi, which is a very profound point. And Rashi says a very basic idea. He says, 
Um, Elo, eno doime mu atimo oisim esatara, lemu rubim ho oisim esatara. You cannot compare a few people singularly doing the Torah, like five people, and a hundred people doing it. When more people come together, then the more successful that spiritual enterprise will be. Something which is really important to appreciate specifically today. Robert Putnam in his um, 2000 classic called Bowling Alone points out that today, there are more people than ever in bowling leagues, but there are less teams than ever in bowling leagues, which means that people are going to bowl, but they're going to bowl al alone. All, um, he, he noted already in the year 2000, that's, that's already two decades back, how there's a, a decline in, um, in all, I'm um, we'll call community-minded organizations over the course since the 1960s to the year 2000. People are interested in doing things, they're involved, they're involved by themselves. The idea of super or hyper-individualism of the Western society is moving away from the idea, which is very much a Jewish value, of working in crowds, being in big minyanim, being in, in, in big groups, not just small groups serving individual needs. That is what's learned from the way that the proportions, the more people together, the more impactful their reach will ultimately be as well. This is a, this is a very profound perspective, which is, uh, um, which is being shared with us in this ratio over here, as Rashi points out. One of the central questions which one can ask and should be asking in these aliyahs, in the first three aliyahs in Pashas Bechel Kaisai, is what seems to be the clear absence of what true reward should be. The Torah is telling us, in a certain sense, that if you do the mitzvahs, what's going to happen? You're going to have all these physical blessings. There'll be peace, and there'll be rain, and there'll be food, and there'll be um, security, all these different things. But in the end of the day, is that really why we do Torah mitzvahs? Do we really go for, listen to the Torah and abide by the mitzvahs in order that there should be physical blessing? Don't we believe that there's something bigger than this? Judaism is replete with the belief in that there's olam haba, the world to come. And in fact, that's one of the, the axioms of faith, as the Ramam explains it, is that there is a, there's going to be a reward, and the reward may not be in this world. And we say this in our davening, and it's replete in the Midrashim. But why, when the Torah describes the reward for doing mitzvahs, it doesn't tell us about Olam Abba. It never says it once in these three first aliyahs, the notion of there being a world after this world. All the blessings seems to be within the confines of this world. It seems to be very, very d d disturbing in that respect. Surely the Torah should at least tell us that there's a much bigger perspective. If you only have this worldly perspective, you can make mistakes. Like, for instance, Elisha ben Avuya, who saw a father tell his son to go, go chase away a mother bird and take the eggs. And he goes up the ladder, chases away the mother bird, falls down, and Rahman al son falls to his death. And Elisha ben Avuya said at that point in time, how can I believe? Lace din lace die on this. No justice, and there's no justice because the Torah says that those are the two mitzvahs by obeying parents and, and uh, chasing away the mother bird, that there'll be a, lot, a length of days. So he said, I, I, can't, I can't accept this. I can't accept the system. Rabbi Yaakov says, says, you know what? It's not referring to this world. It's referring to after this world. But if the Torah doesn't explicitly say that, then how, how, how do we understand that? A lot of very good questions that need to be asked. The first, there's a lot of answers which I'll give. In fact, the Abarbanel enumerates seven different answers in, at great length. The Clay Yaakov summarizes the Abarbanel and brings the, the Rishonim, the, the medieval commentators, and he lines up all seven in a very profound way. There are lots of different answers. One answer is, and this is the Ramam in Hilchas Tshuva, and Perik Test uh, describes this, and he says that the Torah over here is not telling us about reward and punishment. It's, this is the, what's being told over here is not nothing to do with that. What's being described to us is what's called the expense account. So imagine you have an employee. The employee is, meant, is sent to a different city. He's sent to Chicago to go bringing in a number of sales. He's given a company credit card. He's given a, a car. He's given a, a five-star hotel room, and off he goes. He comes back. He closes three deals, and he asks for his he asks for his payment. They say, No, no, we said we gave you a car. We gave your hotel room, we gave you, you know, a credit card, you could do what you want. So the man says, no, that, that's very nice. That was the tools I needed to be able to do my job, but that's not what I'm, my, that's not my salary. My salary is for doing my job. 
There's a difference between the account, uh, the expense account, and, and the salary. And the point over here is the Torah is saying, the Torah is actually not referring to the salary. It's referring to the expense account. If you do the mitzvahs properly, Hashem says, you're bringing in the sales, you're doing what you need to do, then I'll make sure that I'm going to give you enough wherewithal to be able to do it. I'll give you the rain at the right time. I'll give you the success. You can do the mitzvahs properly because that's, that's your expense account. The right hotels, the right cars, the right, the right credit cards to be able to do what it is that you need to do. In fact, there are many people like the Chavetz Chaim as an example. The Chavetz Chaim lived extremely frugally. He didn't even have the back backs to his chairs in his house. He just had benches. Somebody offered the Chavetz Chaim, you know, I can rabbi, we can rush we can pay for these things. The Chavetz Chaim declined and he says, you know, if I up my expense account, um, then perhaps they're going to look, scrutinize when I get to Shemaim how much I was really bringing in. Was I really sufficiently living the life necessary to, to, to justify this kind of expense account? As the Chavetz Chaim says, uh, says about this. So the question then becomes, okay, so you kick the can down the road, then why is it that the Torah is only referring to the expense account and not the salary? So the answer is, says, says the Teferis, to, to Ferris Israel, very, very powerful observation, and that is, is it's about focus. If the Torah were to say, you're going to do mitzvahs in order to get Olam Abba, then we'll all become spiritual hedonists. So what we spend our lives doing is, is I'm going to make sure that I'm going to use you and anybody around me in order to get my Olam Abba, which is the way some people actually do uh, um, work in this world. But the point is the Torah says, of course there's Olam Abba, and Torah Sheba Alpeh, the oral Torah, also from Sinai, is replete with Olam Abba, but the focus of the Torah Sheba is not that. The Torah Sheba says, if you do your job, you'll get a, you'll get a good expense account, it'll be easier for you to do what you need to do. And that's what Pashas Bechukosa is about in this case. It's not about the reward. The reward we know, but the reward is not the focus. This is educational in terms of the way the Torah is setting this up as well. Another possibility is accessibility of the Torah. The Ibn Ezra points out that the Torah has to be read by everybody at all times, meaning a six-year-old uh, little, little child who goes into first grade needs to be able to read the Torah and understand all of it. It has to have access to everybody. And the notion of Olam Abba is so deep, is so profound, is so, is so almost inconceivable. This notion of the spiritual world, the purpose of the universe leading to Olam Abba, um, is so profound that most people don't really understand it. Echomini Elef, he says, one in a thousand maybe understands it. So Torah can't actually explicitly talk about it because it's not something which is Shaveh Lachol Nefesh, which is equal to all people. And that's why the Torah omits this specifically. It talks about all the things that a person can understand, rain, security, food, those things everybody gets. And the Torah has to be understood on all levels. This is a thesis of the Ibn Ezra, and he says it in many other places in the Torah, in, in, many, other, in many other different topics. Very important idea. And finally, one last perspective. There's many, many other perspectives. Perspectives, and that is, is the perspective of Rav Hutner, um, as she shares, which is a very, very profound perspective um, in Pachad Yitzhak and Pesach Ma'amar Nun Beis, where Pachad Yitzhak points out that, in fact, the Torah has multiple layers of meaning. Pshat Remesh Jusot is one way of the basic system, and there's, of course, 49 faces, and there's 70 faces of the Torah. There's different ways of describing the systems of different levels of meaning. And the, and the, the Rav Hutner points out that each layer of meaning is not, in fact, talking about the same reality. Usually when we say something is a secret or something is obvious, we're saying the same facts are either secret, meaning so they're veiled, or they are or, or they're obvious. However, that is not the case necessarily when it comes to Torah. When it comes to Pshat, when something which is which is the we'll call the outer layer of the Torah, it is describing an outer layer of reality. Remez or Drush, when you go down to a deeper level, it's not describing a physical reality, it's describing an emotional or spiritual reality. So it's not actually referring to the same idea. Same the example he gives, he gives many examples, but one example he gives is the Gwara says. Yaakov Yaakovinu never died. The Gemara says, wait a second. They, they eulogized him and they embalmed him, so he wasn't dead. So the Gemara says, no, it's a drasha. I'm coming to give a drasha. What, does that mean if you give a drasha, you have poetic license to change the facts? No. Says Rav the point is like this. Is initially the Gemara thought that this was a talk about a physical reality, pshat. And the Gemara says, no. 
We're talking about a spiritual reality, which is drash. The drash is that in a spiritual sense, Yaakov Vinu was the one who really never le and, and, and never died because his entire legacy continued after him. All his children continued in his ways and his message continued. That's why he never really died. Therefore, the drash is actually referred to a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. That being the case, I would, I would like to suggest that according to this idea of Rav which really it, um, changes the way we look at the Torah as a whole, it would be true then that um, it would be true that according to, to Rav Hudna, that Olam Abba could not be expressed explicitly in the Torah. It can be expressed through Remez and Chazal make many Ramazim as to where it is found in hints in the Torah, but it is not explicitly in the Pshat because it is not a physical entity. So the physical expression of the Torah, which is the Pshat, the most outer layer, cannot express that fully because that is not the tools, that is not the place reflecting that reality. With this, we conclude the, uh, the second Ali and Pashas Bukhakais. In the meantime, have a wonderful and meaningful